I'm Dorianne Wheel. Welcome to Thrive with Dr. D. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Thrive with Dr. D. This is the show where we talk about getting over difficult situations and more than just survival. How do you do a thrival journey? Of course, what we always say is that, especially now in this COVID time, there's so much that is beyond our control. Life happens and it happens unexpectedly. And some people have very major challenges that they contend with sometimes on a daily basis. And some have unexpected life events kind of hit them like a curveball. And what our challenge is, is to how to not let that curveball knock you out or knock you out forever, even if it does temporarily. And so in the service of this and in the service of learning some lessons of not only survival but thrival, I've asked a very close colleague and friend of mine, musical director Brian Schimmel, to share his incredible life story and journey with you because if there was anyone who really should have been knocked out by a carpet that was pulled from under him at several kind of transition points in his life, it was Brian. And yet Brian is here with us now through a very, very difficult time. I think sometimes surviving, like all of us, but mostly thriving. And I think, Brian, I'm very happy to have you with us today because you've got incredible lessons that come out of the story. That is your life. Thank you. So today, just to kind of start off where we are, maybe not where we are exactly today, but pre-COVID, very, very successful, probably one of the, the most, not probably, definitely one of the most successful musical directors in South Africa, receiving international acclaim, sought after for huge, huge corporate events, media productions, and obviously big stage and musical theatre production events. And kind of from a career point of view, riding the crest of the wave, wasn't always like that. I mean, I've also seen some extraordinary feats of yours. For instance, you became known (laughs) as the flying maestro, and I know what a challenge that was when we first met. You expressed your fear of heights, and it was just a goal that you had to say, I'm going to overcome this, not just overcome going to the 22nd or 23rd floor of a lift and looking down. I'm flying literally above people and above the orchestra, and I can conduct an orchestra at the same time. It's quite extraordinary. There have been career challenges, personal challenges, and I think many times in your life where you wondered whether you would, never mind thrive, but survive. And so we're here today to talk to you about some of those events, what your life looked like, and the strengths and resilience that you had to mobilize to get where you are and be where you are today. Sure. Thank you very much. Good to be here. So tell us what that early journey for you looked like. Well, I think the first challenge that I had, which I still live with, is a speech impediment. And when I was a kid, it, it was a proper impediment in, in my head as well. I was afraid of, of, of meeting new people because there was a, an, a, a real fear of not of, of being rejected because I, because I didn't speak properly. And, you know, as a kid, I'd have 
times when like when the family was at a, at a restaurant for example I would order what I could say not what I wanted to eat yeah. because I was so afraid of being judged and one had to live with that and for a kid who, who wanted to be on the stage it was it was a very it was a very confusing uh on the scenario to feel I couldn't express myself and that was that was mainly why I I found comfort and solace in the piano because the piano gave me a means of expressing myself that words couldn't and although I've been known to to have an opinion and be and be opinionated and have a big mouth and and which sometimes has got me into trouble it still is something that I've learned to accept I wouldn't say accept it's something I've learned to to live with as part of my character. Whereas I, I viewed it as a kid and as a young person as something that, that was inhibiting, it's now something that I go, it's, it's, part of my, it's part of what makes me unique. It's part of what makes me me. You know, I remember back in, when I was in my 20s, before the age of social media and apps and dating apps, where you could send a, a picture and a text. I always remember being, you know, I'd go, I'd go to bars or go to clubs or whatever, like a lot of people my age, to meet other people. And my biggest fear was, was actually saying hello to an absolute stranger because my fear was that in that particular environment of a bar or a club, somebody might think I was either drunk or I was high or I was stoned or I was something because I couldn't speak properly. So um, it inhibits. Can I just ask you about this? Because I think there are two such important things you're talking about. The one is the difficulty in expressing yourself. The other one is realization of difference. You felt different from anybody else and not accepted because of it. So I was just interested as you went on, how much was I'm not like the others, I'm not the same. And how much of it was I'm unable to express myself? Or was it a combination of both? Oh, it's hard to say how much was, was which. It was definitely a combination. But it was exacerbated by the fact that I knew as a young kid that, that uh, and, and I was gay. I knew that, that, that I wasn't one of the cool kids. I wasn't the it boy. I wasn't the jock. So... Um, the the stuttering combined with 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 the with the with the fact that I was a different kid that I wasn't a sportsman um, that I liked the arts that I like that that already set me apart and I knew that I was different I wasn't a rugby player I wasn't a soccer player but the place that I found power and solace and comfort was when I when I was behind the piano because I was able to express myself without speaking. And it was, it was really the, the, the turning point in my being able to speak. I mean, I'll, I'll just mention a very pivotal moment in my, in my childhood. I was 11 years old when I auditioned for a, a, a professional production of The Sound of Music. And I went to audition for the role of Kurt. And... I walked into the audition, I sang Hello Dolly, 
which at, at 11 years old was already a sign of which way I was going. And I sang Hello, Dolly. I was, I was then asked to come back and dance. I came back and danced, and then I had to speak, and then I had to do dialogue. And that was when I folded. And it was a very, very traumatizing moment for me because I really felt like I was never going to have an opportunity to, to speak in public on speak on a stage. And the next pivotal moment was when Ian, Ian von Memmity and I, you know, who'd done a lot of productions together in the 80s and the early 90s, Ian and I um, started, started, started creating the original Handful of Keys in 1994. And our director was Alan Swerdlow. And I remember saying to Alan, we'll both play and, and Ian, will, Ian will do um, all the speaking and all the chat. And he said to me, no, he said, both of you are going to chat. Both of you are going to speak. And it was quite, the thought of it at first was, gave me an immense anxiety. And what was incredible about Alan is he, he nurtured me through this and he guided me through something that was overcoming such a traumatizing experience that was, I'm going to speak to an audience. And we built in a joke about the fact that I have a, have a speech impediment into the, into the dialogue. Because I said to Ellen, I said, I don't want an audience to feel uncomfortable if they don't know. So we built in a few gags that, that actually made the audience laugh with me. And when I realized after we, we, we'd, we'd run the show a couple of times, I realized that that was the turning point of when it was when I realized that it's it's part of it's part of what makes me unique and not part of what makes me it's not a it's not it's not an it's not an inhibitor it's not an aberration it's just just part of me and it makes me different but it took me until that point in my life but therein lies the first lesson and I think that there is truth in that, in lots of situations, when you own it, you know, we often say when you name it, you can tame it. It's kind of, um, and when you own it, if you owned it and didn't pretend that it wasn't there, then it didn't become this huge aberration anymore. It just became, I'm not saying something that you absolutely loved and embraced and you needed it necessarily, your identity, but you owned it. And it then the kind of power that that had over you in dissipated. You could take away that kind of fear. You were in control of it more than it was in control of you. And that remained with you pretty much forever. So you've had that. I mean, I think that, there, as you said, something that you still live with. But going forward with that, you then went ahead. I mean, you really established your talent and your desire, both your talent and a desire for music. And you wanted to pursue that, I think, not always with the support of your parents who had other dreams for you, but you went ahead anyway. Yeah, I mean, I had a mother who, who was an actress before she got married in the, in the late 40s, early 50s. My father came from Germany 
He was born in Germany. He was schooled in France. And the Second World War broke out and Hitler invaded Poland when he was 17 years old. So he's, his, his background and his history was fighting the war. He, he fought for the Allied forces. And I was never really told pretty much any of what he went through. I mean, the, there were a couple of stories, but, 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 the, but the, real, the real nuts and bolts and the real hard, hardcore stuff of what he survived, I was never, ever told. But he got through the war and he made it to um, pre-1948 pre Israel on an illegal ship. And the story, that, which is, is absolute fact, is, is my mom was on, a, on her first trip to Israel in 1955. Mm. And she was on a bus tour in Haifa. And the, and the tour guide was my father. And the reason he became a tour guide was that was that he, the one, the one talent he did have was that he was a linguist. He could speak multiple languages. But because of the war, he had no, no tertiary um, education. They met on that bus tour, and that night, he proposed to her on Mount Carmel. Gosh, what a beautiful romance. <laughs> it's a fairy tale story, but that's, that's what happened. So he moved back here, and they got married, and he opened, he opened a business. He opened a battery business, car battery business. Which, which many, many years later became, became Battery Center. But the point of, of why I'm explaining about my father and why you, and why you, why you raised it, Dory, I think, is my father came from a background where, where understanding that he had a son who was an artist, who was a musician, who was, who was creative, who was gay, who was everything that was so out of his realm of of, of context uh, um, was just, he was not ready for that. And he had a whole vision for me that was very, very different from my own vision for us. And I, uh, and I was pretty clear at a young age that I wanted to be in the arts and I wanted to be on the stage. And the thing with my father, he was, he was tough, he was strict, he was he was he was he was he was distant. He was he was sometimes violent, and the challenge there was like you know every every kid wants the wants the, wants the approval of two people in their lives. They want the, the approval of both parents, and I had my mother's approval, and she was my protector against my father. But because of the way life was in the fifties when they met into the middle class um, um, Jewish home in the, you know, in the 70s. He was the one who kind of ruled the house. Anyway, so he had one idea. I, I had another idea and it never, we never, we never met. Unfortunately, he passed away when he, when I was only 27. So he never got to see me at the peak of my career. And that's, left me with unfinished business and a lot of anger that only years later I found I had come around to actually forgiving him because what I realized is that he wasn't an unkind man. He wasn't harmful. He was just working with what he knew and working with what he had. And a lot of disappointment that, you know, there wasn't, I wouldn't say it was closure, 
but that you, he couldn't accompany you on your own journey and your own successful journey. And that you and him were kind of left with perceptions that never really kind of actualized mm. properly. But I think the thing when, when mm. yeah, where you said that you understood it and he was what he was. So he wasn't that keen when you said that you wanted to go full time yeah. into studying music. Mm. And you did. You left your course that you were busy with, didn't you? Started off trying to do something yeah. else. And I, I've heard you could run and I share platforms sometimes. We do public speeches together and I've just, you know, so benefited from hearing this incredible story and how you've overcome it. So I know about that first year at university, which was shocking for you, and you needed to get out and be where you wanted to be. Yes. And then it went from there. Yes. That was, I think you went to study Pretoria, didn't you? Yes. So I did a year, year of engineering at WITS because of my father, and it just, it just didn't work. It wasn't going to happen. And I, and I failed it miserably. And then, and then I went to Pretoria. And I was in the first year of the intake of the light music course at what was Technicon Pretoria, which, is, which later became TUT. It was a three-year diploma course. And I did it. And I, and I was the top student. And I got to the end of third year. And I had an attitude of, I've learned everything I've, need to, I've needed to learn. I've taken all the, all the information in. I don't need to write exams and get a piece of paper to prove that I know what I know, which was extremely cocky and extremely arrogant. But it's honestly how I felt. I was like, I've got the knowledge. I want to go and work. And the fact that I didn't, I didn't, I didn't graduate or get it or get a piece of paper incensed my father even more in, in that he didn't understand what I was all about. That even doing what I wanted to do, I didn't qualify with anything that he could understand as an academic qualification. Several years later in, in 2007, I started lecturing at WITS in the, in the WITS music department. And it was because of that, of, that, of that appointment that I felt that there was something incomplete in my life. And this was now nearly 20 years later. I felt that there was something miss, missing in my life and I could, and I could feel it because I was teaching students and I enrolled to do a master's degree, uh, which I was allowed to do, even though I didn't have a, a bachelor's degree because of a, of a circumstance or a precedent called, called RPL, which is recognition of prior learning. So I was allowed to enter a master's degree in music program. And it took me five years to complete and I got my master's degree cum laude. And the most satisfying thing was that I looked back and I thought my father would finally be proud that I actually got a piece of paper that he could understand. And you were proud. I was. Because I, it, it, was, it was a sense of completion. But I think going back to the end of, the end of those studies. So I finished those studies and there was a, and there was a good a good five to six years of, of, of career building, which, which peaked with a handful of keys in 94, 95. And then I was kind of, I was restless and I was ambitious and I was hungry and I, and I wanted to explore um, uh, bigger avenues and, and, and higher ceilings. So 
I applied for a residence permit in the US and I got it. I got it on the strength of what they call extraordinary ability. And, you know, being an artist, being a creative person, I didn't have a business sense at the time. And I just, I sold everything up and I moved. And getting there, it was, and that, that, that became the next major challenge in my life because you think you know what you're getting into and you think you know what it's all about. But I'd come from being a, being a big fish in a small pond. Suddenly I was, a, I was a goldfish in the ocean. And it was more about the fact, it's not the fact that there is better talent in New York because there is, there is great talent and there's, and there's awful talent. It's suddenly realizing that there are so many more who want to do the same thing because you've got a population of 350,000 people. So there are proportionately that that many more who want, to, who want to do what I do. You know, you come from a place where, where in South Africa, talent is special. In New York, talent is not special, it's a given. And that, and that was the one, the one big shock. The second one was that, and this is of course, is pre the era of social media, where by definition with social media is about self-promotion. We'd come from a, a post-apartheid period in the, in the mid-90s where shameless self-promotion was considered improper. It wasn't the right thing to do. So, and so, I'd, and so I'd never actively done any self-promotion. Also, I'd been in a headspace of I didn't have to speak because the piano and the talent did, did all the work for me. So here I found myself in a space in which having to shamelessly self-promote was what everybody did because Americans are, are, are breastfed on the art of, on the art of, of self-promotion. And that was, that was where I came unstuck because I just couldn't compete in the networking mindset. So to take that aspect and, and sort of realizing that no longer was the, the gift that I had or the, or the talent that I had, no longer did it feel unique, no longer did it feel special. So I had to go on a, on a deep amount of soul searching as to discover and investigate and who I was and what I was without, without music. Who was the person aside from the talent? Because for a lot of this time, what I'd done is I had conflated the two. I had defined myself by what I did rather than look at it and go, what I do is what I do. It's not who I am. So with that, I didn't have any family over there. I didn't have any, any friends of history. I was making new histories, making new friendships and discovering life in another country. And I was at an age where I was, I was vulnerable. I was, ex I was experimental. I was wanting to, to experience things I'd never experienced before. And that was when I was, was when I discovered crystal meth and I'd been in America about a year when I had, when I had discovered it and, you know, coming from a sheltered um, middle-class home in, in South Africa, I'd never thought of drugs as being, uh, as being recreational. But I was suddenly discovering that it was people with means and people with class and people with 
professional jobs who were partaking of this. And it all seemed normal and exciting and seductive and and it just reeled me in. And before I knew it, it was like once a month, every second weekend, every second weekend became every weekend, every weekend soon soon rolled into days of the week. I mean, this happened over a period, but it sucks you in and you don't realize that it's sucking you in. Many times, you know, I had, I recall saying to um, people, I've got this, I'm in control of it. But realizing not long after that, that I wasn't in control of it, it was controlling me. With that came a lot of dark sexual behavior, um, which led to, the, to my being diagnosed with HIV in, in 98. And I was diagnosed and... The strange thing is I kind of knew that I'd that I'd been responsible for it because of, because of my behavior. And so it was a shock at first. And at that time, 98 was a period when the first ARVs had just started coming out. It was just past the peak of the, of the worst cases of, of AIDS deaths. But but the medications were still new and I kind of looked and went, I was 34 years old and I looked at myself and I went, you've done this to yourself. You, uh, you need to own it. You need to be responsible for it. And I honestly thought I wouldn't make it until 50. I thought by the time I'm 50, I'm going to be dead. And I'll be 56 next month. So it spiraled out of control. Eventually, you know, I left New York because I thought leaving New York was actually the answer, but it wasn't. I left New York and I went, I went to Las Vegas because, it, because I looked at it and I went, it's, an, it's a center of entertainment. I'll work. I'll be fine. It won't be, be as, 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 as brutal as New York, all of that. And it only got worse. The turning point for me was in the middle of 2002. So I'd been gone six years. The middle of 2002 was a day that, that I had a vision. And it's a vision that, that I'll never forget. And the vision was a crossroads. It was like you see in the desert when you see a signpost going one way and a signpost going the other way. And one sign said, stay in the US and you will die. And the other sign said, pack up your pride and go home. And for me, the pride issue was a big one because I'd said to you earlier that I that I'd when I left when I left South Africa and went to New York, I'd packed up everything, I'd sold my house, I'd sold my car, I'd closed my bank accounts. I'd made it as difficult as possible to not come back. So the issue of pride was one of I was gonna come back a failure. But I'd reached an unexpected point in my journey, one that I had not in any way, shape or form anticipated that left me with the choice of, of this is of, it's either of, of life or death. And I put my heart away and I chose life. Oh, Brian, I mean, it was come back home alive or stay here and probably die. I mean, that's what it is. There have been hugely challenging times, and yet here you sit 
in global health and mental health pandemic. You know, you are with difficulty, and I'm saying with difficulty because everybody in your industry mm-hmm. is really struggling at the moment. Everybody. There are no live performances, very few. People have to reinvent themselves. They're, everybody is hit, but in some way much more than others. You've done some production. You and I did a great 21-week production. So you've had to reinvent yourself, and you've had to find the courage and the strength that might have been developed, in a sense, over some of this challenging time and these experiences that you've had. So what do you want to say about shifts that you've made and you want other people to kind of embrace and know about that could assist in going forward? Sure. I think that's a tough question. Um, because here we sit, I mean, certainly the last eight months have been an unprecedented time. So the challenges are new and I've been trying to learn from my own challenges and my own and one my own experiences of how I've overcome them. But you know, I said, yo, that's a difficult question. One of my very good friends, and you know him, uh, Sean Barber, he said in a speech recently, he was talking about what kept his business alive all through COVID, which is now flourishing again. And he said, it wasn't hope. He said, hope kills. He said, there's a difference between hope and self-belief. And I think it's, it, it, you know, I, I'm not going to pretend that it's been eight easy months. You and I have spoken, and I'm sure that all, that all the listeners have, have experienced, experienced the same thing. I've had moments where I feel like I'm in control and moments where I'm swerving. But I think it's and the, the self-belief is a big one because I'm, I'm starting to also feel like, like hope is not, is an, is an intangible, it's, it's intangible. Whereas belief in yourself comes from within. And that's important. I think what you're saying is that I hope something means there is also some doubt that maybe it won't happen. Yes. Hope kind of also mm-hmm. embraces doubt. Whereas belief knowing, I know. Yes. That there is light at the end of the tunnel. You don't know when, but you do know. You know, you remind me of a conversation that I had once with Amit Prada. You said, I said, what kept you going throughout that whole time in Robin Island? And he said it was just the, the belief and the knowing that we were going to, you know, we were going to beat this. We were going to win the struggle. We were right. just fighting it from a different place. Yeah. I wanted to say to you, do you still, when you have the moments of swerving, do you do what you always do? Cut off the phone, take yourself off social uh, media, make yourself inaccessible? Or do you reach out now? I do. Do you still do that? You know, I still do that. I mean, I, particularly in this time where because of the situation and because, because the situation has been, is so unprecedented, I have found in the last eight months that that oftentimes, whether it's the stress of the lockdown or that the political landscape of the world and what's going on on the other side of the Atlantic, Lord help us, but people 
on social media are unnecessarily ugly because they all just want to have uh, have a soapbox and they want to be heard. So for me, when I'm not in a good place, I don't just stay away from social media. I, I deactivate my accounts because it's like there's something about the deactivation of not being discovered in the, in the social sphere. And there's something about distancing myself from that and just finding and re and, and regrouping with myself before I can regroup with the chaos. You know, it's been interesting in the last weeks going out again and meeting with people and, and having real life, real life conversations with people. The virtual world is not going away, but there's still nothing that replaces live performance and nothing that, that replaces live in-person connection with somebody. I think everybody's experiencing this now that we've been down the road for such a long time, understanding the power of it, knowing that there's an element that is not the same and reaching out not to other people, but to people who, you know, care about you. So being more discerning. So, yeah, Brian, it's been a, it's been a hell of a journey that you've had and lots that you can teach and share. I know that one of your mottos is live to inspire and I think that you do. You've made that motto into reality. So people do listen and, and it makes them feel that if he can get through this with some of the tips and wisdom that he's sharing with us, we can too. So thanks for that and for being open. Sure. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Dorian. I'm Dorian Wheel. Thanks for listening to Thrive with Dr. D, a jackpot podcast.